Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Hello to everyone and thanks for tuning in on yet another glorious day here in Johannesburg. Uh, this is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Mbele. Uh, as always, I'm delighted to share this space and time with you as we continue to, to bring topical and strategic insights from some of our guests. What could be more strategical or topical other than uh, Omicron variant that has saw the wealthy nations uh, quickly banning South Africans or closing their borders uh, on, on us, uh, whereas this particular variant has been identified in countries such as Hong Kong, Australia, Belgium, Italy, UK, Germany, Australia, Denmark, and of course Israel. So these are some of the questions that are lamenting, or these are some of the issues or concerns that brings into question the political landscape or political lens establishment in the West. There are obviously a number of significant consequences uh, from a layman point of view. One could argue that the collaboration and partnerships that have been established between and among countries is likely to suffer in that developing countries will be more reluctant, I would imagine, uh, to disclose their scientific dis- discoveries as, as this, as this is obviously putting a strain. I hope that particular issue won't happen. You can imagine when a major discovery has been done or, you know, established or found in the, in Sarak area and because of this fear uh, of being punished, people pull, pulling back on potentially a solution that would better, um, you know, humanity. So let's hope that, you know, obviously the experts and politicians will sit around a table and see how we could uh, address that particular issue. In the same vein, we do need to juxtapose the pandemic uh, with economic recovery initiatives, particularly in the, in, 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 the, in the country. You all know that South Africa was long hit before the COVID-19. We were already in a terrible economic state back then. In today's show, we're having a conversation with Alan Mokoki, who's an executive at the South African Chamber of Business and Industry, Saki, as well as Unatim Toninzi, who is a director at Namahaya Engineering Consulting. Or as I've already indicated, the focal point of our discussion is the extent to which government funding institutions have mended their operations to diffuse, if you like, the impact of COVID-19 uh, on, on, on the economy as a, as a whole. Um, before we get, in, we get into our conversation, um, if your, your, your thoughts and, and insights are welcome via our SMS line, which is 34519, the telegram is 0618951095, and of course my Twitter handle is at Mbele Nimrod. Let me take this opportunity to welcome my colleagues that I've already introduced. Ellen, good morning, and then Unati, welcome. Good morning, uh, Nimrod, and good morning to uh, your crew, uh, the power behind the throne. And uh, good morning to your listeners as well. Um, Absolutely. Good morning, sir. And good morning to Mr. Alan and Labisa and Vosi. And thanks for having me on your show. Thank you. Thank you very much, colleagues, for coming through. Uh, I've already painted a picture. One, What comes to mind immediately based on that picture is that do you have enough state funding institution to partner with private sector equity outfits? Or what is the mischief in the operation? As well? Let me start with Alan. I think there are a lot of issues and a lot of those particular issues deal largely with a conceptual understanding of what it is that the state can do and is capable of doing. And I'm saying this deliberately because 
in a number of cases, you you end up with people getting into the policy uh, space of wanting to formulate policy without understanding or as- answering the fundamental question of what exactly is the problem that you are trying to to solve for. We've been very clear in our mind in terms of us as the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry that the big issues in South Africa, it's not just the three, no, it's not just poverty, inequality and unemployment, but it's also the issue of hunger. So if you take those four big gorillas and you put them on one side and then you say, here is my situation as it exists today, what are these things that we're actually supposed to solve for? So long before we talk about the state wants to put money into DFIs. We have to have a very clear conceptual understanding, in fact, of how a DFI should be run. And I struggle myself, and I've spent more than 20 years of my life as a senior banker uh, sitting on the other side and doing all sorts of transactions. And I do think that I understand what banks uh, are able to do and when they decide to lend and when they don't actually decide to lend. So what you can actually be able to do is to make the DFIs behave exactly like the banks. Right? Of course, you need the skills because you can't go and get people to work in DFIs who don't even understand how to do financial evaluation, how to look at cash flows, how to analyze business and the environment in which those particular businesses exist. So you are not compromising on that hype. So I'm not saying that go grab yourself a, a number of philosophers and political scientists and all sorts of people and tell them to run essentially a business institution that's looking after whether it can invest in businesses. But you do need to have a very different psychology. And I say this uh, very, very advisedly. If you look at banks, typically the banks use 90% of the money that they use. For every $1 billion worth of loans that they've issued out there, 90% of that money belongs to depositors. So it's you and me, our current account, savings accounts, fixed deposits, whatever the case might be. That is the money that the bank actually relies. The other 10% really belongs to shareholders, which is only 100 million in every billion. Even then, the regulations with the SAP, they talk about primary capital. So in other words, the 10% capital reserve requirement against risk-weighted assets effectively means what I've just said, that of all risk-weighted weighted assets such as uh, loans and uh, commitments and guarantees by bank, whatever the case might be, you need to have 10% of your own money in that environment. There is no depositors insurance in South Africa where if depositors lose money, as you saw with VPS and other things, it's guaranteed that you will actually get back the money. So banks suffer from schizophrenia where on the one side they're trying to make money, on the other side they're trying to gain a decent level of return for their own shareholders. But they are not even using their own money because 90% of the money that they use doesn't belong to them. But then the Reserve Bank makes sure that their lending criteria is so strict, right, that they cannot veer off the cost. So that's a different thing. So what you cannot then afford to do is when the state owns 100% a particular entity, even if they choose that, we're going to also go into the capital markets and actually raise money to fund us. But the state is fully behind as a shareholder, 100% behind that particular program because they have to pay uh, that money. In that regard, therefore, it therefore means you can't evaluate and measure DFIs on the same basis as you measure the commercial banks. Commercial banks must the income and the revenues must wash the face of the expenses. But in a DFI, you've got to be able to take a, la- a higher level of risk. Banks today, for instance, many of them would struggle to take a 3% loss uh, given default on the loans of the issue. In other words, that's a very, very big number for them. You know. However, a DFI can indeed, and we've demonstrated this several times, that a DFI can lose up to 30%. This is not what DFIs in South Africa are doing. And very quickly, so I don't terminate the conversation, if you had, say, 1 billion rand, 10 billion rand that you've lent out as a DFI, 
If you are a bank, there is no way that you can manage to lose 300 million of that money. It's not possible to do so. 3 billion, sorry, of that money is not possible to do that. However, as a DFI, we need to put a different measurement. And here is the measurement, uh, uh, number one. What exactly is the 7 billion worth of loans that have been issued to people generating to the fiscus, right? Across all the three lines of tax, of revenue, uh, personal income tax, corporate income tax, as well as indirect taxes, plus the economic value add in the entire value chain, because there are people supplying into that business, there are people buying into that particular business, generating further wealth to the state. You will then find, whilst the DFI is unable to sustain a $3 billion loss, but the state itself on the other side, on the $7 billion that they've actually issued by way of loans and advances and guarantees, <coughs> is actually even able to make up to $5 billion rand. So the $5 billion that's going to SARS is not coming to this balance sheet of this DFI, ought to be able to wash the face of the big losses that you are making this side. And that way you then have sufficient money, then you're behaving like a DFI, because there has to be an element of subsidization of that loss. As long as you can explain that I'm creating the jobs and you can, and in a very, very clear way, demonstrate here is the actual economic value that has been added. Not some wishy-washy stuff of perception. No, real story that these businesses that we funded with the $7 billion have paid X amount of taxes, have generated X amount of indirect, have generated X amount of, of economic value. Let me leave it here for now. Thank you very much, Alan, for that very interesting unpacking of a very complex uh, issue. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrat Tembeda. Let's quickly take a break before we come back with Unati's response to this very important uh, issues that Alan has raised. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Thank you very much. Welcome back. If you have just joined us, you uh, didn't miss quite a bit. However, I'm joined by Alan Boki, who is the chief executive at Saki, the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and, and Onati Ntoninzi, who is a director at Namahaya Engineering Consulting. Alan's to kick off a very interesting conversation, giving us his view in terms of, uh, at the principal level, conceptual a consideration uh, in relation to how the DFI ought to respond. And it was quite loaded in terms of what he has uh, put to. Uh, without a waste of time, let me bring in Unati. Uh, Unati, your, your initial reaction based on what Alan has put forward and what really stood out for you. Thank you very much. Greetings to Mr. Alan. You know, for me, it's a it's, I, I take it a different uh, take completely. Because the minute you start using banks as a reference, you're then going to struggle to justify a lot of the different approach that I think he's speaking about. For me, from the onset, the banks should never be, in my view, the benchmark or or, or the datum of where DFI should function. Number two, in the South African context, DFIs should investigate quite thoroughly why are businesses, especially the businesses that they have been funding, why are those businesses failing? Because if they have a better understanding of why those businesses are failing, they can then build mechanisms to ensure or bring up a higher success rate of those businesses. Because even in the example that he's talking about where you can 
have a success rate of 70%. The 30% would also mean that other businesses continue to be excluded in participating, even if you are able to demonstrate some form of generic uh, return in the economy, which makes an example of taxes. But still, that means the 30% would, would exclude a lot of businesses. So as far as I'm concerned, the challenge we have is actually the leadership, both I think in the state and in the DFIs, which is influenced by, I think, largely the, the accounting profession, which I find to be very risk averse. But also unwilling, and a lot of the time, some of these people who do these valuations of these DFIs have never run a business, actually. So they don't have and they're not interested really to try and put mechanisms in place to ensure that these businesses succeed. I can give many examples where the business is sound. There's nothing wrong with the business. What is wrong is the behavior of the leadership of the business. So when the money hits the account, all they do is they think that they must spend the money on the most luxurious items they can lend, they can, they can put their eyes on. And then the business runs out of cash and the business dies. So there's nothing wrong with the business. There's everything wrong with the people that are leading the business. We have to build up mechanisms of dealing with that kind of business leadership when you are financed by DFI to ensure that the entity survives, even if it survives under a different set of names. In other words, if the business was led by Dr. Nimrod and he decides to buy Bentleys with the money, and, and there must be mechanisms to recover the money as much as possible and mechanisms to ensure that the money is given to another person who can run the business and, and continue because what is important for the economy is to sustain the enterprise. And whether we sustain it through Unati or we sustain it through Nimrod, it might not be the most important thing. But the challenge with it is that the leadership or business leaders are the ones in most cases that kill these enterprises. So as far as I'm concerned, I think these DFIs should extend themselves to ensuring or putting measures in place to ensure that the enterprises survive. So for example, I mean, in South Africa, there's just too high a rate of failure of business enterprises, especially small businesses. So for me, I wouldn't even like to benchmark it with, with banks because banks as he makes the, the, the fundamental difference that banks are using even depositors' money to to not to want to give or to be risk-averse against maybe the same depositor when he comes as somebody who's looking to, to, to borrow money from the same bank. So the same bank you gave your money to can refuse to give you a loan. So can I just come back in the uh, United? I think you've made very interesting points, which I want Ellen to come in. Firstly, your your concern is that the banking fraternity is is incorrect um, benchmarking exercise. And secondly, you are saying to us the businesses there has to be measures that are put in place by DFIs insofar as ensuring the success of those businesses. In your view, the failures relates to business leadership. Uh, in the, obviously at the state level, but also as those um, at the entity level where, which have received financial backing. So, Ellen, I mean, these are two big issues that Onat has raised, and I think there are there's some merit in there. What's your perspective? Well, you know, here's the deal about whether you want to be influenced by accountants and uh, and bankers, and whether you want to do a comparative uh, with that. South Africa as a sovereign state is rated by ratings agencies. You and I sitting here today, we are not necessarily going to succeed in changing those rules. We're not going to be able to say 
we want to be rated in a way that is very different because those people, they represent the people who own the money and they then are supposedly independent and they will give opinions about us. Auditors are global. The international financial reporting standards are also global. Uh, the Basel uh, regime on how you look at bad debts and provisioning and when do you have to take it from your income statement and out of your uh, capital account if you are a lending institution as a bank. Those things are all already established and actually codified. The difficulty that you would experience in that type of an environment is that if you want to drive sustainable fundamental change and renewal in any organization, in large organizations or large entities, and I've just given you the example of the accountants and the auditors and the risk evaluators and the private equity firms and all those things, those people form an organization, they are part of the same system. And if you want to drive renewal and change, you have to be able to do that on the edge of that organization. You are not going to be able to say, I don't want to be part of the rules and I want to operate externally and outside. So first, you've got to be able to say, if you wanted to change play, uh, a Pep Guardiola is able to tell City players not to play in the manner in which they are now playing. They must play actually differently. They can't question him whether he knows what he's talking about because he's a former <laughs> captain of the Spanish football team. He played for Barcelona. So he knows the rules himself. He understands the game, okay? So the difficulty that we experience sometimes is, is if we don't want to accept the rules, we can only innovate and change and really aggressively revolutionize those particular rules. But fundamentally, we must know the rules. So we have to understand the rules of accounting and the auditors and what the banking systems are actually doing. Then we say, ah, 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 you are not going to do that. You need to do things in a way that is different. So that would be my initial response to that, because any other way is going to delay everyone else. Because what's going to happen is that the money doesn't belong to you. You are still using other people's money. Even the state itself doesn't actually have money, given the fact that state run, is run on revenue minus expenses. So the state at this particular point in time is spending more money than it's actually receiving. And to close the gap between the income and the expenditure, which is higher, the state is actually borrowing. So there's no money sitting around anywhere that the state can have. So the state is going to have to convince those people who give money to the state that they understand the rules themselves, number one. And therefore, you are now going to drive this big change and renewal within the system itself, which is a lot more easier, actually, to do because you can gain a lot of uh, traction and you can gain a lot of partners. So, yes, we don't want banking rules in running the TFI, but we can only say so because we understand what the banking rules are and we also understand what is the problem with them and we also understand what are the good parts about them because not everything is wrong. But when it comes to the pieces that are very critical that are, and are stopping the DFIs from doing and taking the risk that they should be taking, we're able to make the change. You can keep the rest of it. We don't care. We'll keep your risk assessment, keep everything else. But we're saying yeah, we're going to have a, a high level of tolerance to risk. Number one, for instance, as a clear example, can you please stop asking black people for own contribution? Let me tell you something. There is fundamentally, and I'm speaking of someone who studied finance at a very high level, there is fundamentally zero, zero, zero empirical evidence that because someone has given you own contribution, therefore, 
they are either not going to default or they are actually going to default. It's a non-sequitur. It's not a related issue. We can structure the balance sheet in a way that is decent without necessarily imposing a standard on black people that they don't actually have. Even if someone is asking for say, 2 million and the DFIs will tell you, ah, as long as I've got 20% on contribution. I don't know too many, I've been black all my life, as you'd appreciate. I don't know too many black people who've got 400,000 in their pocket to get into business right now. So we have to understand the systemic challenges that we have and the history that has. And now because the DFIs themselves are imposing this regulation on black people must come with own contribution and they must also come with additional collateral security. Therefore, they are not actually going to get those loans. And quite a number of the people that you know, they then go and find other white people who must give them that particular money, but the white people uh, end up taking most of that particular business in any event because no one is going to give you money for free. So I'm then saying these arguments that banks are making, first we must understand, what is the reason that you want own contribution? What is the reason you want security? You are trying to evaluate the risk. I saw a transaction not too many ago from a TFI, and this particular black entity is in the chicken business, a broiler business, they were being given an offtake agreement by one of the majors in South Africa, by one of the big, big, big chicken uh, people in South Africa, right? Yet the bank was asking for own contribution and security. This is exactly the point that I'm making. Because when you understand the reason why you want this, because you cannot evaluate the risk and the future cash flows of that business. But the, the offtake agreement has just solved that particular problem for you. Yet the DFI, thinking like a bank, is still requesting so these are the things that are not being challenged, that need to be challenged, but specifically if you understand what they are doing, the reason why they are doing it, you are now able to say, but that's absolute nonsense because you are not making sense, as in, this exa- in the two examples that I've actually uh, given now. Because fundamentally, you are not playing with your own money, you are playing with other people's money. Other people's money are going to say in their due diligence when they give you the money, they want to understand whether you know their rules, whether you respect those particular rules. So if you want to drive innovation and change and renewal, you are doing it around that without compromising without compromising the risk. As I said, you are not compromising the risk. I'm not just saying DFIs must go willy-nilly, just lend money all over the place. I also don't necessarily believe everyone is supposed to. Not everyone is an entrepreneur. It's not true. So generally... If you say 30% of the people are actually going to fail, if they, 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 they only get to be excluded because they have actually failed. But that means you've given them all the support mechanisms and you didn't put too much restriction on their ability to be able to run those particular businesses. And you are giving businesses, you are giving money to the right, you are giving money to the right people who've got the right training. Just because you used to work in a mine, you lost your job, doesn't make you an entrepreneur right now with your pension money that you want to start a business, you know. It's a different type of individual who can get in there, who's got grit, who can sustain a business, who can deal with all the challenges. Business isn't welfare. It's not the same thing. So we're not saying subsidize and work, <laughs> saying that give them an opportunity. On that very note, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9. Hi, Nimrod Mbele here. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research. The science of decision making. Welcome back. Uh, if you have just missed out, uh, please stay around. This is a very interesting and critical conversation that we are having with my guests uh, this glorious morning. I'm joined by Alan Mukoki, who is the chief executive at the SAKI, South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, as well as Unatim Tuninsi, who is a director at Nemahaya Engineering Consulting. We are debunking the funding models that are used by DFIs. Before we took that short break, 
we got a very interesting perspective from Ellen, which I want uh, Unati to come through. Critically, what Ellen pulled out, or perhaps maybe what stood out for me uh, in his um, clarification, firstly, the fact that when you enter a space of business, there are rules that are codified. The rules of engagements are independent of some of the players, particularly you and I. That's that's quite critical. Therefore, it is important for anybody who enters that particular space to be cognizant on the level of influence one has. If you want to play with the big boys, there's certain rules that you need to uh, adhere to. That was his one of those critical issues that he raised. The other issue is the risk tolerance associated with DFIs. In his view, and I'm sure most people would agree with him, that the risk tolerance of the DFI should be a lot higher than that of a commercial bank. And lastly, he also alluded to the fact that the, you know, because of the high risk tolerance of the DFIs, issues around collateral, um, which are, are often required by DFIs themselves, as well, let alone commercial banks, it's actually misplaced for there's no correlation between, um, you know, the collateral that one puts together and, and evidence of whether that business would take off or not. In his final remark, he pointed us to us that the takeoff agreement should uh, offset any need for collateral. Um, therefore, th- that kind of arrangement is a nuanced approach that is needed. All those three points that I've indicated, what is it that should be done differently in as far as DFIs are concerned? I mean, Ellen made very interesting observations, which I want you to reflect on. Your take, please. Uh, Thank you so much. I I, I think we agree, you know, um, maybe we use different words to say the same thing. Because if you were to accept uh, an off-take agreement as suffice to ameliorate the risk, that is a fundamentally different approach to risk. And I agree with him that I, I, I also never understood the correlation that says that you'd have to contribute your own money or that when you contribute your own money, you will be more responsible in looking after the business than you would have if you didn't contribute your own money. So that's a fundamental difference in my view in risk approach that is he's suggesting and what I was suggesting from the beginning. And I think the rules apply normally to money that people give to you. So if banks give you the money, then they have the authority to, to impose their rules. And I think equally here, if the money is, is even if it's sourced uh, in the credit market or in the debt market, uh, once the money hits the DFIs, the DFIs have the authority over the money to use it in a manner that they think is suitable for the circumstances. And when that money is used successfully, the results will show. Because part of the problem, even with those um, um, uh, um, rating agencies, is they then use the same failure against you to rate you downwards in any event. Um, In other words, even if you are a DFI, when a lot of the cash that you started with is still there at the end of the financial year, in other words, you've not given out the loans, then they still use that against you because you're not being successful as a DFI. So either way, in my view, the, the rating will still go down, in my view, because of that. Besides, also, you have to please the interest of the shareholder who's more interested in the money being lent out than the money being staying in the, in the, in the, in the bank account of the DFI. So in principle, I think, as far as I'm concerned, we agree that uh, we you, we have to take a fundamentally different approach to what a typical bank does in trying to give out a loan. So a DFI should 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 do that. 
And I agree that, I mean, I, I've been involved a little bit in proposals for the industrial uh, programs uh, in Guazul Natal, for example. The people that you give the support to, that is key to this because you have to give this support to people who have the best interests of the country at heart. And those are the people that would then expand uh, um, the businesses and ensure that these businesses succeed. And the value chain effect in in the different industries of success of those businesses is very important for other businesses as well. So, so I fully agree with this principle. All I'm saying is that even if there are bigger uh, uh, rules on credit and risk, you can, within that space, create your own space and create your own rules. Because if you don't create your own rules, then you, you simply do not succeed. And I think that's also what he's saying is, is you just don't succeed if you, if you continue in the same, in the, in the same path that the banks uh, continue. Hence I was saying in the beginning that they shouldn't be really a reference point in what you're trying to achieve. Thank you very much for that insight, Onati. We pretty much uh, aligned, but one of the issues that you have raised, which which is quite critical, I'm sure Alan would agree with you, is the quality of support that is provided. That is another quagmire because when you when you augment your financial um, um, instrument, you also have to back it up with technical expertise that uh, is often required in supporting or in in the supported uh, entities, and it's often not readily available. So that's one issue. But going forward, one of the issues that I want us to, to, to reflect on from a key strategic point of view is that we have 27.8 million, give or take about 20, 28 million South Africans who are depending on social grants. And when you look at the funding of social grants, it far outweighs any, you know, injection on small business development. What does this mean? Do it in, in my in, in my head, and I'm sure in the heads of so many entrepreneurs and the listener. We we often struggle in comprehending the dosage. For example, we understand that um, majority of people are unemployed. Therefore, there is a space for social grant, but there's also space for substantial injection of capital to small businesses. For they are the backbone of economic recovery. I just want to hear Alan's view on the leadership ethos around social grants, disbursements, capital, as well as small business development uh, capital. Why this huge disjuncture? Bishop uh, Desmond Tutu uh, was having the promise of the Dalai Lama. Uh, I recall that at some stage there was this interview that the Dalai Lama had done, and he was being asked, how come you and Tutu get along so well? And yet you come from such different backgrounds in terms of your religious ethos and what you are trying to do. And he said he said he gave a very interesting answer that I don't know whether many people uh, noted. He said it's not so much about the differences between the religion. He said that it's the interconnectedness. In other words, there are more things that different religious people agree on than they disagree on. That's the point, really, that he was trying to make. But he said the interconnectedness as a principle is the most important thing uh, because you've got to have say, a level of saying, what is this thing connected to what? So when we address the issue of small business, we cannot address the issue of small business away from what I said earlier on is the objective of dealing with the issue of raising the standards of living you know, Xi Jinping talks about what exactly is the objective around rain in China. 
He says that raising the standards of living and making people happy. He says both of them. He doesn't say one. People must be happy, but at the same time, their standards of life must actually go up and look at the work that they've actually done and trying to achieve that. So we have to have something of that nature. We can't always be talking about we want uh, uh, black people to be equal to white people and then and then it's not clear what exactly do we mean by that. So if you then look at that particular model and you say small business, it's because there's, let, there's a lot of confusion about what is meant by small business. I saw this massive debate and I was on the other side of the, of the massive debate when the, the so-called um, uh, COVID uh, guarantee loan scheme was being put together and the former minister was on TV saying that, yes, but people need to understand that uh, this money is only going to white businesses and it's not actually touching black businesses. And someone was responding on the other side, said, but the banks can't manufacture black businesses because already the money was supposed to go. The government designed a scheme that is only supposed to ex- assist not new businesses, but existing businesses. So if today you've got 75% white business and 25% black businesses, what exactly do you think is going to happen when you say, I'm issuing a guarantee to existing businesses? So 25% of the money is going to end up, if it's proportionally distributed, with black businesses, 75%. Then you turn around and say, but this money is not only being used to, uh, to, to help white business. And someone missed the point of the interconnectedness in that particular statement to say, it's a mistake, by the way, by the government of South Africa, to assume that when we talk about small business, we're actually talking about black business. It's not true. Uh, or that when we say small business, we're talking about startup business. That's also another flaw, okay? The majority of South African businesses, you must recall that the JSC does not have more than 500 businesses. The majority of South African businesses are actually small, family-owned, medium enterprises that have been around for years and years and years. That's the crux of where you are getting your tax revenues um, to do all the other stuff that you are actually supposed to, to do. That's the crux of where you are getting the, the massive levels of employment. So you need to be very serious-minded around when I say small business development. I'm not only referring to giving people a 100 million so that they can start. You know, people go and celebrate. I mean, I saw a fund that they were launching just not months ago, and the Minister Patel was there, and it's like a billion. I said, these guys are sitting there celebrating a billion. I mean, a billion, really? A lot of these businesses that are successful, they don't even, they can not even work with a billion. They need like four or five billion, one business. So that's the extent of the confusion that I'm raising, that you need at least a minimum, minimum, right, of an investment of somewhere between 50 and 100 billion every year in South Africa to do the kind of work that the the development of small, medium enterprises, as well as the development of the existing one, because part of the problem that we miss, by the way, okay, the strategy has got to be core and context. What is your context business? Your context business is to enable the majority of black people in this country to have better lives by ensuring that either they are going to get employment with rising incomes, or they are going to be having an opportunity to get into business so that they can create wealth for themselves. There's no other equation, okay? So that's your context. If you lose that particular context, you're not going to do what you're supposed to do. But the core is how are you actually going to do that? You then need to protect the core. You need to protect the businesses that are generating your income, the very income that you need to go and subsidize the people on the other side, right? So development of the existing businesses in South Africa so that they are competitive globally is as critical. We saw what happened to our textile industry 
when the government unwisely decided to adopt the, 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 the 10 points of the Washington consensus that re- included deregulating the industry and allowing imports coming into South Africa. Some of those imports were substandard. Some of them were heavily, heavily uh, dumping. And our industries there were being demonstrated. And in a number of cases, they actually disappeared and we lost all those jobs. Because China is not going to go create manufacturing jobs in South Africa for the goods that they bring into South Africa. They are creating jobs in China and they are subsidizing those particular exports coming into South Africa. So we made a mistake from a regulatory point of making that point again about the interconnectedness of everything. Now your small business guy is sitting in the middle. He does not have the tech. He does not have the most advanced uh, logistics uh, system, management, finance, and distribution and all the things that they are supposed to have. But they are competing with some guy sitting in Taipei, Taiwan, on exactly the same product that that guy, our government has now allowed the guy from outside to be able to sell into South Africa cheaper than our own guys can actually manufacture. So I'm saying the interconnectedness is that you need to develop businesses that exist so that you can protect them because that's your core. That's where you are going to make your money as a state. Whether they are white, whether they are pink, whether they are brown, it doesn't matter. Have a strategy, a separate strategy, whether you want to call it small business development, I don't know what you want to call it. Have a separate strategy where you want to develop and you want to grow that sector because that's where jobs are coming from right now. That's where your revenue to the state is going to come from. Have a separate strategy what you're going to do for black people because the failure of black business is going to be the failure of the country. You need to be able to understand that because that's a very simple equation. So when you mix and match, you want small business, black business, and white business in one port, and it's one department, that's not going to do the same thing because the needs of the two sectors are fundamentally not the same. Similarly, the needs of a startup business are completely, completely different. Those who've been in business for a while and they just need a, a, a leg up, to grow their businesses by 25% annual growth rate or 30%, you need to have a very clear strategy. How am I going to have, here is a business in Boxback that does precision engineering and they are not in Africa. How am I going to help them? doesn't matter whether they're white because they're employing 500 black people and they're paying salaries at a wage, at, at, at a wage that is much more higher than the minimum wage. So we have to understand that dynamic of we want to make money from that white business as government because we're still collecting more than 50% of every rent that gets to be produced there. Our 20, 28% tax, our employees tax, our indirect taxes. Government is going to make more money. So protect the white businesses and grow them, but be extremely aggressive in terms of the risks that you want to take around black business and promote them aggressively as well. Separate the two strategies and then put in the billions. You can't be putting 17, uh, whatever, uh, 17 million people on social welfare and putting billions and billions, but you have actually no idea how you are going to take those people out of that social welfare because they can only be in jobs or they can only be in their own businesses or they have high skills where they are able to actually Get work outside of the country. On that, on that very interesting point, uh, Ellen, I, I think you've shared a very interesting perspective, which uh, the listener would definitely agree with you in terms of understanding the context and, and most importantly, the interconnectedness of business. Obviously, you have to have a two-pronged strategy. Before giving my view, Onati, what is your take on the debate around interconnectedness of business and the extent to which the system or the government is actually responsive to the kind of business environment. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I share the experiences uh, of, of my colleague here. Um, honestly, I, I don't think the government 
fully understands the problem. And I think that's what he was saying earlier on that, you know, you, 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 if you adopt a very orthodox approach to problem solving, a key component of that is a proper diagnosis of the problem. And I don't think South Africa is generally, we have understood the impact of colonialism and apartheid and what it has done to our people. And a lot of what we need to do to succeed needs a fundamental change in how we perceive ourselves as black people and perceive ourselves as white people so that we can be able to take advantage of these opportunities. The reality is that most of us as black people, specifically as the majority, and I agree that if black people fail, this country fails, we are unable to do with that. And government just doesn't in a lot of time have the intellectual capacity to deal with this problem. So in essence, I agree. I agree that also that the, 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 the grant system is really something that keeps people captive. It's a dignity destroying concept, which you need the opposite of to build these small businesses. You need people who have a sense of pride. Uh, as like Muslim Gog was saying, a lot of these businesses are family businesses. So you need people who have a lot of pride to build these small businesses. So to transform these people from a dignity-destroying grant system and transform them to participate in a small business building drive is a huge thing. So, and government, I don't think, understands those fundamental issues about people. So for me, I agree. I, I, I don't think the government understands and I don't think the government is going to change any of that anytime soon. And the problem is just get, in fact, even more complicated if you start realizing that the people that do get the loans are politically connected people, then there's corruption. Then. So it's it just gets worse. It gets even more complicated as, as far as I'm concerned. So unless there's a fundamental change in, in the way that the government itself and the capacity of the state itself, I don't see us making the kind of inroads that we would like to make, uh, both in terms of taking people out of that grant system and actually transforming those people to participate in small businesses. Even let's make an example, uh, uh, maybe last example, uh, the role of the competition commission. What does it do to try and break some of the monopoly and the cabals within the different industries? I mean, last week I had someone or two weeks ago, I had someone come fix a geezer in my house and I was asking him, so why don't you have your own business? Why? why? Because you can, you came here, you fixed everything and then the geezer is working. There's nothing wrong. Fixed by them. So I asked, why can't you from the business? And he says, no, but we don't have the relationships. I don't have the relationships with the insurance company so that they can give me the work to do. So what happens is I might get three geezers a month, but that's not enough to sustain me. Whereas if I work for somebody, I can then get a guaranteed salary and then and then maybe do more work over the weekends and that's and then I'll get significantly more money. So so what does the competition commission do to ensure that there's fairness to access uh, to these opportunities uh, in the different industries, including the insurance industries. So if the business is distributed along racial lines, what, what, what is the competition commission doing about that? So these are the things that I think the government should think about. Uh, I see they make headways, for instance, in the, in the after sales, uh, 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 service in, 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 in cars. 
but they should do it in many other industries. And and typically, you should put more money in the capacity of the Competition Commission to, to deregulate and deal with the cabals. Uh, let me just quickly come in. Um, we're, we, we're definitely running out of time. We need to wrap up. Um, this is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. Uh, this is Nimrod. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back as we're wrapping up with this very fascinating conversation. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. It's amazing how time flies when you're really having fun, particularly uh, when you have two relatively super um, uh, intellectuals and practitioners with vast amount of experience um, and in, in their back, articulating a very complex and complicated socioeconomic environment that we find ourselves in. The, the, the thrust of our conversation this morning is the extent to which the funding institution, the development funding institutions are actually um, cognizant of the dynamic nature uh, imposed by COVID and the extent to which the rules of engagements are actually shaping or changing so that we're able to balance um, uh, the equation properly. Just before we took that small break, the issue which Ellen brought to our attention is the fact that there's a need for a clear strategy uh, that that appreciate existing business um, and also new business. You, your strategy, your 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 strategy from government side of things has to recognize that duality. As we are wrapping up this particular conversation this morning, let me start with with Ellen. Fundamental, I know a lot of uh, business leaders are listening to this particular show. A lot of government officials at the higher echelon are listening to this particular show. What is it that you need to, what is it that you need to take and absorb um, in, in, in order to take this part of trajectory of thinking forward, Ellen? most important thing is to uh, enable the government to appreciate that the first and foremost government shows a, a very unbelievable lack of awareness um, because they get themselves into the people who, whom we refer to as people who, who don't know what they don't know. So they have to have the right people in organizations such as DFIs you know, on the boards as well as the executive, as well as the right people in terms of the agencies that are supposed to promote that. Because if you look at the profile and the general resume of most of the people who are in those agencies, they've never run a business before, neither have they been executives in entrepreneurial businesses or successful businesses. So now you've got bureaucrats trying to do business for you, and that doesn't necessarily work because they cannot understand and conceptualize some of these things that we're actually talking about. Because, you know, a man cannot be more experienced, uh, more, more, more talented than the level of experience that he has. So you, you have to have people who understand entrepreneurship and who understand how these things can actually be done, uh, staffing them there. Then secondly, you need to be able to say, I can see the equation very, 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 very quickly. So many people are unemployed. I can't do what I've been doing all this time. So we need to have people who can change the system in a way that is very, very, very meager. Because if you don't do that, the country will definitely uh, become a failed state. Because you can't have 45% people who are unemployed who happen to be young people as well. It doesn't make any sense. That's not sustainable. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Ulati, your part in short, um, based on, on the intellectual capacity of the state, which Alain does acknowledge and the fit for purpose in terms of deployment of people uh, who are knowledgeable, which is the point which I thought you really raised uh, eloquently earlier. 
No, no, I, I agree. And and I think there should be some form of um, consolidation of, of these efforts because I think out of that intellectual capacity, one of the things that will come out is a consolidation of all these efforts into one integrated way of building up businesses and giving access to people that have been marginalized before to a meaningful participation in the economy. I think there's just too many organizations playing in the same space doing different things. Uh, but that is something that the state can do when it is the capacity. Thank you very much for that insight. And um, I'm who is an executive director um, at Saki and Unatin Toninzi, who is a director at Nahama Engineering Consulting. We were have we had an opportunity to debunk you know the quagmire experienced by the small businesses from a regulatory point of view from a programmatic point of view from a financial modeling point of view and the consensus is that there is absolutely a need for change uh, change will obviously have to start with putting the right people in those strategic positions um, so that they're able to run the programmatic approach of funding different uh, for it is impossible for anyone who has never run and managed any business to be the third leader uh, in, in dispensing because most of them are risk averse. These are some of the issues that we have unpacked and, and I seems to agree on. The biggest um, uh, take home point for me is the intellectual capacity of the state. And it comes on over and over again. This has to be a deliberate attempt by state to provide the necessary capacity for, you know, in order to drive the economy. Uh, we can't, we cannot reboot the economy system without understanding the levels of capacity of state to deliver, particularly uh, in key positions. One of those, obviously, is the small and medium development environment, which absolutely need key thought leaders across the board. It doesn't really matter your skin color. It doesn't really matter where you come from. You do need to have people who are competent, reliable, and have absolute experience in managing these changes. Unfortunately, we're going to leave it here. We've had absolutely beautiful time with the colleagues that have come through. First of all, certainly I've uh, benefited. I think they've the, the, the extent of benefit has also reached you. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, let's, we're going to have to leave it from here. Uh, thank, thank you, Nimrod. Thanks, Unati, and thanks to thank you, thank uh, you. the, the production you. team. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we're going to leave it here. Uh, our party should please let's be mindful of uh, COVID-19. It's still amongst us and definitely little. Uh, let's uh, observe all the protocols that put to us. Let's do this again. It's an absolute, it's been absolutely a pleasure to have your audience, uh, which we really appreciate. Have a good one.